0: The Energy Gang is brought to you by Mission Solar Energy, a solar module manufacturer based in San Antonio, Texas. Mission Solar operates a 260-megawatt facility right here in the U.S. Through state-of-the-art engineering and outstanding quality, Mission Solar's modules, every one of which is made in their Texas facility, offer world-class performance and guaranteed long-term reliability. You can find out more about Mission's high-powered modules at missionsolar.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, a weekly digest on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey, welcome. Don't let government pick winners and losers. That was Rick Perry's mantra as a presidential candidate. But it didn't take him long to drop it as energy secretary. This week, we'll take a look at a rare, bizarre request from Perry asking federal regulators to restructure electricity markets and prop up struggling coal and nuke plants. Then the latest on the post-hurricane energy crisis in Puerto Rico, Catherine's uh, been pretty active on the energy policy front, so we're going to get an update from her about the Washington-Puerto Rico relationship, or uh, lack thereof, (laughs) depending on how you look at it. Finally, an Alaskan sovereign wealth fund is betting big on distributed energy, and guess what? It's making that bet through Generate Capital, Jigger's firm, so we're going to hear from him on what Generate's latest fund says about new investment approaches. Uh, So it turns out while I was away for a few weeks just hanging out on the beach, sipping cocktails, looking at all the wildlife in Africa, my co-hosts were pretty busy working on um, how to rebuild Puerto Rico and raising multi-hundred million dollar funds uh let's say hello to them they've been very busy Catherine hamilton is in washington dc she's a partner and co-founder of 38 north solutions hello Catherine.
1: hi it's so good to hear your voice again steven we've missed you
0: oh my god i missed you guys so much and thanks for coming to the wedding by the way did you have fun
1: oh my gosh it was so beautiful you guys are perfect it was lovely
2: <laughs> we missed you at the wedding jigger I know. I'm so sorry. Although I did find it to be very interesting how there was a little bit of a a Twitter flare up. Did you see that? Uh, About what exactly? I was in the middle of one. (laughs) Well, you were in the New York Times and someone said something derogatory about it. And then someone else like came in and said, "What? We're all very happy for Stephen Lacey and their wedding." <laughs> well, it turns out that there is like a cottage industry devoted
0: to attacking couples who have their wedding announcements in the New York Times. And it's kind of understandable because the New York Times has historically been uh, very waspy in its choices of who to feature in the wedding section. So people saw a millennial middle-class white couple who met through a podcast, and who were spending their free time building a wedding podcast of their own, and it was perfect fodder for making fun of uh, a couple of uh, very classic millennials. So anyway, I got made fun of on Twitter, and a bunch of energy folks came in to defend my honor, and I deeply appreciate that. Energy Twitter fought back.
1: Well, and you were podcasting your wedding, which was hilarious because the podcaster with her big microphone was walking by me and I said, oh, hey, did you want to uh, interview me? And she said, oh, no, we're okay. Oh, my God. <laughs> why didn't you really force funny. yourself in there? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that's right. We hired an audio uh, producer to actually record our entire wedding ceremony. And for the last nine months, uh, Sandy and I have been recording every moment of the wedding planning process. And so we're taking all that audio. We're continuing to interview other couples and people in the wedding industry to try to put together a personalized how-to guide of going through this very important moment in people's lives. And we're in the early stages of figuring out what it ultimately looks like, but it's a side project that I'm looking forward to uh, working on. And hopefully it'll drop this year, but it's going to take a lot of work. Um, so when we went on our hiatus, we got this big piece of news out of Washington. Rick Perry sent a letter to federal energy regulators asking them to figure out a way to compensate coal and nuclear power plants with 90 days of fuel supply on site. Why would he do this? Perry argued in this memo that it would make the grid more reliable, but critics, which includes pretty much everybody across the political spectrum. I mean, it's really remarkable to see how many people have come out against this proposed rule. See it as a thinly veiled attempt to keep aging coal and nuke nuke plants open as they struggle in the market. So the so-called notice of proposed rulemaking is not something that the DOE does very often. I think the last time DOE issued one of these notices was in the 80s. It's, it's almost always the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission that, you know, issues these proposals and crafts the rules. So Rick Perry making this request was very, uh, well, way out of the norm. The memo was brief. It didn't really explain why a 90-day on-site fuel supply was so important for reliability. And that lack of rigor potentially opens up the process to all these legal challenges. Uh, so let's back up and provide a bit of context. Um, If you do want to hear about the legal flimsiness of the proposal, Shail Khan had a great interview with Harvard senior fellow Ari Pesco on our sister podcast, The Interchange, a couple weeks ago, and that's a good companion to this conversation. So, Catherine, give us a bit more detail on what this so-called NOPER, a Notice of Proposed Rulemaking, says and why it was crafted at all.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, they came out with a GRID study which wasn't as bad as everybody expected. And then they took pieces of that grid study and said, based on this, we need to subsidize coal, Uh, which caused me to ask the question, well, what problem are we solving for? Is there a reliability issue? I have not heard of that issue before. Everything seems to be going well. And they also sort of conflated reliability with resilience. And resilience is different. Resilience, while it doesn't have, you know, does not have a record that has been built at FERC, is the way I define it is the ability to come back quickly um, and in a very localized way. There are probably a lot of attributes to resilience. Resilience, in fact, is a goal, not an attribute. So, what do we need? What are we What are we asking for? What is the definition of resilience? Why do we need it? And why is it that a 90-day fuel supply is the only thing that the only attribute that can meet that definition? So what they asked for was for FERC to um, have a final action December 11th that would, the only plants that qualified are those that are regulated by FERC. So that rules out all of ERCOT in Texas, um, that they have a 90-day fuel supply. And I'm not sure how many Fit that, but I'm sure they could get a 90-day fuel supply if they needed to. Those that uh, um, provide essential energy and ancillary services, and they have to be merchant plants, so they can't be regulated by cost of service rates in the state. So they can't be IOUs. So actually, this rule only applies to a couple of Ohio coal plants, really. Um, oh, it's really and, that
0: limited, huh?
1: Oh, it is so limited. I didn't there realize was a how little slim bit the on nukes. Was. Yeah. But if you if you read Exelon's comments, they or Energy's and Energy's comments, you will hear that the nuclear industry, while generally supportive, a lot of those facilities don't um, comply with this. So this is something that Trump campaigned on. The president said in Ohio, we are going to save your coal plants. And that's what this rule was designed to do.
2: Well, First Energy is rearing its head right before bankruptcy.
1: Yes, exactly. And what's interesting is that if you follow, Ari Pesco also has this great um, Twitter thread where he's gone through so many comments. I don't know if he's been sleeping at all, but there have been hundreds and hundreds of comments. I filed some too on behalf of the Advanced Energy Management Alliance. And, you know, he's gone through all of these to kind of come up with what's, you know, what are all these different groups saying? And what First Energy did also was they got all these, they, they wrote a template and got all these other people to submit comments. And you can tell because some people forgot to fill in the like insert company name here uh, on behalf of First Energy kind of thing. So you can tell where those comments came from. And so they had a bunch of folks um, submitting, but the vast majority of comments were in opposition to this.
0: Yeah, go follow Ari Pesco on Twitter, actually. That guy is really sharp. And and again, listen to the interview that he did a couple weeks ago with Shale on the Interchange podcast, because he walks through the legal implications and the background of like why DOE would try to do something like this. Uh, Very, very sharp guy. You know, this has just received criticism across the board from, um, you know, pretty much everyone I can think of who's in charge of regional markets, uh, who supports renewable energy, who supports free markets. It has just received so much scathing criticism. Interestingly, today we published an op-ed from New Mexico Senator Martin Heinrich, who's very savvy on energy issues, and who called this a thinly veiled attempt to prop up coal plants. So Jigger, is this Rick Perry's way of fulfilling Donald Trump's campaign promise to prop up coal plants?
2: Look, I think like most things that we talk about around the Trump administration, this is another effort by the Trump administration that basically shows that no one took civics 101. And they literally have no idea how anything works. And there, I think, is virtually no chance that this happens, even if it does happen. And FERC magically decides that they really are part of the swamp, then I think that it'll be in lawsuits for years. So I just I honestly don't understand why people get spun up by this administration on stupid things,
1: well, here's the thing. you actually, it's not necessarily getting spun up. You have to build a record because that's how FERC is going to even be able to make a decision at all. So they can either reject this out of hand, which I doubt they'll just do that, or they can accept it. And if they accept it the way it is, it's not legally defensible. You're right, jigger. it they it won't hold up because there is no record. There's no record. Um, of any kind of burden to show that there is a problem with resilience or reliability. So ha- And there's no um, proof of unjust, unreasonable rate structures and lack of competition. So maybe there's some things you can fix in the market construct, but right now we don't have that. So their third option, which is probably where they end up going and they have to make some kind of action on December 11th, is to say, all right. Well, let's figure out if there is an issue, and let's do technical conferences, and let's start building a record so we can figure out what are things that do need to change to make the markets function better.
2: Right, and so like you know, I, um, I've just been following this from afar, and like when you listen to Ari and the podcast, I mean, it's very obvious that he was being kind, just because I think he's that kind of person. But he was like, uh, I think this was written by a third grader. Absolutely. Like, I mean, it's so flimsy, as he described, Yeah, he was it. like, there was no process, there was no record, there was no nothing. And so I'm trying to figure out why I should be responding. It's like, we're basically in a situation where Trump tweets something out, and we all have to like, you know, sort of follow it. In this case, Rick Perry basically barfs up a FERC thing, and we all have to talk about it. I mean, Literally, the most incompetent people at DOE probably in, since its formation. Jigger, the reason why we respond to this stuff is because it is not
0: a normal part of the process, and it's up to folks who understand the process to be able to call out BS when they see it. So even if you think that this is completely legally indefensible and it won't go anywhere, you still— are taking up the time and energy of the most important body of energy regulators in the country and you need to be able to say this is a waste of time if you believe that and explain why it's not worth the effort. And so if you don't and if you if you don't push back then you make it part of the normal process. You make this stuff... No, n- no, n- no. Look, I, I have
2: no doubt in my mind that people will push back. And I read a lot of the comments. And so I know a lot of people pushed back. I'm just saying to you that, like, that when you think about what really needs to happen, like what we talked about in 2015, when the PTC and ITC were extended, was I said that this will basically make every wholesale market in the country not function anymore, which is where we're headed, right? That's basically what this is saying is that market clearing prices are so low that basically these coal plants and nuclear plants who still have life left in them can't compete anymore. And I think fairly soon the natural gas plants won't be able to compete very, very soon, right? So now you're in a situation where DOE really does have to do the heavy lifting to figure out how to redo wholesale markets because solar and wind have basically made them not work anymore, And I don't know exactly how that happens, but it's at least a four-year effort to get that done. And... I hope that they actually focus on that as opposed to this wild goose chase.
1: Well, and ironically, if they do this and they do give adders to coal plants and have this new product and only 90-day fuel supply will comply and just these few plants, those plants will then become only more expensive and unable to play in the market. They will go to the end of the line on what is deployed at any given time because they will be too expensive, even more more expensive than they are now because of all the payments they're going to be getting. So it's it's ironic. I think you're right. It was not written in a sophisticated way at all. DOE has the authority to issue these proposed rules under the DOE Organization Act, which was create which created DOE and FERC and their relationship. But FERC, in the end, um, has the decision and the final action authority. So that's why I'm focused on FERC because FERC does have to build a record and they do have to defend all of their market decisions legally. And I, I think that's where we need to continue to press. The other
2: thing I would say is that I think the narrative gets lost here. And I think it's incumbent upon us to, to fix the narrative. Um, you know, that, you know, as someone who's followed this very closely for a long time, um, the coal industry was really targeted for elimination, not by the renewable energy industry, but by the oil and gas industry. Right. It was it was Aubrey McClendon that gave the money to Carl Pope at the Sierra Club to start the Beyond Coal campaign. It was the natural gas industry that killed the coal plants in Kansas and Oklahoma. Right. It's been the oil and gas industry that's been at war with the coal industry, not the renewable energy industry.
1: Well, so those industries filed comments with the American Wind Energy Association and other groups. Right. So it's a quite uh, unlikely bedfellows. But they're yeah, you're right. They're on the, they're on the same side of the like, argument. Yeah.
2: Right. That's my thing is that like for somebody who's in the pocket of big oil and Rick Perry, you would think for a second that he would actually go along with his big donors and allow coal to die because that's what their big donors want. He
1: did not win the election. His president is Donald
2: Trump. Not Rick Perry was not elected. I get it, but I get it. But Donald Trump's not smart enough to figure out this like loophole in DOE. So like, you know, he didn't, Rick Perry didn't have to do the work. I'm just saying, I think there's a false narrative where it was like the Obama administration's war on coal, the renewable energy industry's war on coal, or nuclear for that matter. And we've done nothing of the sort. I mean, until a few years ago, we weren't even powerful enough to go to war with anybody. And, you know, like, I, this is really all the oil and gas industry's fault. They're the ones who've had this sustained war against coal. And now the coal industry has, you know, withered under that pressure. Well, this is probably a rabbit hole that we don't need to jump down. But
0: after the natural gas industry supported environmental groups, those environmental groups continued to support uh, the push the phase out of coal, and then renewable energy, as it became more cost competitive, uh, took on that mission to kill coal. So I think it's been a collective effort, but probably a, a point we don't need to belabor. I think what's important to reiterate here is just how many important people and thought leaders and groups Active in the energy sector have come out against this proposal. Um, you know, uh, uh, John Wellinghoff said it would blow up markets. Andy Ott, the CEO of PJM, basically said the same thing on a call on Monday with reporters, just saying it would put throw markets into chaos. The um, you know, many free market groups, for example, have been very critical of the proposal because of how it might distort markets. Obviously, the renewable energy folks and environmental groups have been critical because they see it as a way to prop up coal. Um, it's it's really almost, and then as you said, Catherine, the oil and gas industry has come out against this. Rick Perry is really standing out there on one leg alone, <laughs> uh, and he barely has a leg to stand on here. And, and really, when you look at the 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 record that doesn't exist and the lack of um rigor behind this legal argument one wonders. How what the final outcome will be if, if FERC will actually act on this.
1: Yeah, and remember, so also Department of Interior weighed in in support of this rule. So the administration generally, um, and FERC is an independent agency, but the rest of the administration is supportive because they're supporting their president, of course. Um, but I would also add that the demand response and DER groups are also weighing in against it because a lot of the competition in the markets and the ability for a lot of those ser- services and technologies to participate and provide um, real value to the grid has made the markets actually work correctly um, so that you do get the lowest cost, most reliable resources coming in when they're needed. Um, but remember- well, Can, I, that can one I stop
0: you there? I'm sorry. What you just said is exactly what the DOE report said, that markets are functioning correctly. This was the resiliency report. And then Rick Perry comes in and basically contradicts everything that that report said he contradicts his own staff and says, well, actually, markets aren't working correctly, and here's how we change them.
1: So there's a really good piece by Deborah Roberts and Vox, where he talks to Allison Silverstein, who wrote the DOE report, and he gets some ideas from her. Okay, you wrote this report. What do you think would help the markets work better? And it's a lot of what we've talked about, and it's not what Rick Perry actually issued. Um, but remember, there's one other wrinkle, which is that we could, before they make a final decision, have two more commissioners at FERC and a new chair of FERC. So Right now, they sort of have the minimum of the quorum, the three, but there are two that are pending Senate floor confirmation, and as soon as they're confirmed on the Senate floor, they're going to be installed, and that could change the dynamics as well.
0: A couple more points, and then we'll move on. First of all, there have been a number of great analyses on the, the economic impact here, and uh, ICF... Looked at the yearly costs associated with propping up these plants, and they said it could cost ratepayers between 800 million and 3.8 billion dollars a year to keep these plants offering or to offer them another incentive to run when they might not otherwise be running. Um, interestingly, the Rhodium Group put together this fantastic analysis of what's actually causing outages and problems, and it found that 96 percent of power losses between 2012 and 2016 were caused by extreme weather. Um, And having fuel supply on site, for example, during the polar vortex, when a lot of coal piles were frozen, would not actually help during those extreme weather events. So really, you're looking at a very small number of instances where a rule like this would actually makes sense i have one last question and that is there has been universal criticism of this rule but there have been some who've said wait a second if this does keep some aging nuclear plants open it could actually be good for the climate and it's just one other way to assist many of these plants that could operate past their licenses for maybe a couple of decades any thoughts on what that potential impact would be and if it has a substantial climate benefit to keeping low carbon electricity on the grid.
2: Well, I think to be clear, it's very important to note that the NEI did not make this argument. The NEI made the argument of resiliency but paid particular attention not to mention climate change. And so, it's quite shocking how they're like it's climate change, climate change under the Obama administration and oh wait, what's climate change under the Trump administration. So, no, that's because there's a no, reason no, for that.
1: that. And that's because FERC does not have jurisdiction over carbon. So carbon has been a state issue or a regional issue. It has not it is not under FERC's jurisdiction. FERC is only responsible for cost. Just and reasonable rates and reliability. So you have to come at this, is this a reliability issue, or is this a just and reasonable price issue? That those are the only two arguments they can make unless they create, unless FERC were to create another product which would be a carbon product. But they can't use the argument of carbon at all with FERC because that is not in their jurisdiction.
2: No, I appreciate that, but I'm just saying that like like Maria, you know, um, Korsnick, NEI's president and CEO, didn't say this at the conference yesterday. She didn't say it at on the press release that she issued. Those are not FERC comments. Those are comments that were made to the press. She could have added it there. It just—it's very telling to me that these guys are like fair weather fans on this stuff. And you know, like it's—it's it's just one of those things. The other thing I would say is on the resiliency side, I really do believe that the wholesale markets will have a problem with being able to keep the lights on in the future because of the way in which assets are getting priced out of the market. I just don't think that 90 days of storage is the way you solve it. As Chris Clack and many other folks have modeled, there are ways in which to provide the grid services necessary to keep um, grid reliability and resiliency strong that are far cheaper.
0: And this is what we talk about almost every week, these technology-neutral mechanisms that are just starting to evolve that can use distributed energy to provide those traditional grid functions.
1: Yeah, and I totally agree. I think, Jigger, if we want to have that conversation, then that's the one we should have, and we should figure out what is wrong with the market and what can we change, and let's build a record and, and do something about that.
0: And that's certainly the most intellectually honest and realistic conversation that we could Be having, but alas, that's not the political situation we live in now, is it? Um, If you're still confused about this, you've got some homework. Again, listen to Ari Pesco on the interchange; really good interview on the legal implications. Read Martin Heinrich's piece at Green Tech Media on the political response to this, and we've got a bunch of other coverage over the last few weeks. And then read Dave Roberts' piece that Catherine referenced on Vox. We'll, We'll link to that as well. He does a great job of sort of breaking down what would the market mechanisms be if you wanted to provide these reliability, resiliency services that Big Perry's
1: talking about. Could I also put in a pitch for There's one more podcast that you might want to check out that's not a Green Tech Media podcast, which yes, is Grid, Grid Geeks that Allison Clements runs. And she had a whole topic on this as well with Doug Smith and Sue Tierney. And that is really worth listening to also if you want to geek out about FERC.
2: Yeah, I would also suggest that you just read anything else because like this is so crazy. It it really is. And
0: it will be a future topic of discussion as FERC starts to grapple with it. Let's take a pause here to reflect on the growth of the solar industry and talk about Mission Solar Energy, our sponsor. You know, the solar industry is approaching 300,000 people employed, and a lot of folks are finally taking notice of the explosion of domestic growth here in solar. And Mission Solar is one of those proud employers. The company's 260-megawatt manufacturing facility supports local U.S. production, engineering, and office jobs in San Antonio, Texas, directly contributing to America's burgeoning clean energy economy, of which solar is a dominant player. Mission Solar's Texas-based location makes it easier for developers to fulfill their needs, keeping projects moving and on schedule. And Mission Solar's in-house research and development laboratory keeps the company innovating and producing the highest quality modules possible. You can check out all their modules and uh, learn more about the company itself at missionsolar.com. That's missionsolar.com. Thanks to Mission for supporting the show. Let's get an update on the situation in Puerto Rico now, where... Only one quarter of the island has electricity. I don't even think one quarter yet has it, just under one quarter. And residents are still suffering from a lack of drinking water, poor communications infrastructure, and face a daunting rebuilding process that has barely begun. You wouldn't know that by looking at the president's Twitter feed. Donald Trump has moved on to making fun of senators, criticizing the NFL, and talking about how great the stock market is performing under his presidency Meanwhile, the residents of Puerto Rico are living in a war zone more than a month after Hurricane Maria. Catherine, Puerto Rico has become a focus for you in recent weeks. What's the latest there?
1: Yeah, I've been working with a coalition of business and nonprofit groups to try to figure out how do we remove policy barriers to make sure that we can move funding and resources in a way that really does think about not just the triage that we have to do now, but a little bit longer term on, you know, where do we need to go with this? Can we do things that are resilient as we're restoring? So that's kind of where we're focused. The, unfortunately, what they're focused on right now on the island, and they have um, a contractor that has just been hired to do transmission system only. So that's not even dealing with the distribution system um, and they just do not have enough boots on the ground because they have not been organized. The governor has not been organized enough to make this happen in a way that, that works very well. And there are so many volunteers ready. There are so many companies ready. There is the Army Corps that is trying to help as well, but they're not grid planners, you know, they'll repair things, but they can't plan a grid. Um, and then there are lots of other folks. I've been talking to a guy from PJM who has been deployed with the Army Reserves to to help on this. And he gives me kind of blow by blow action of here's what's happening on the ground. Here's what we need. You know, we need a multifunctional, multi-jurisdictional team that can deal with immediate issues, long-term system planning, and then longer-term system reconstruction. Those are just some of of the gnarly issues.
0: So pretty much everything then.
1: Yes, exactly. And that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to do everything. All I'm trying to do is figure out, are there things that we can put into some of this recovery language to allow infrastructure not to be just built back the way it was, but to build back more resilient? And again, we have to come up with a good definition of what is resilient. We, We need to allow the Army Corps when they deploy all of their um, their backup generators in that program to not just deploy diesel gensets because that requires fuel, but to allow them to, say, put in batteries. They don't have any flexibility there. And there are a number of other things that I think we can do that would attract private sector funding because there are a lot of private sector companies and foundations that want to contribute, but they don't know how to do it. There's not a mechanism right now.
0: Okay, Jigger, uh Catherine, I want to hear from you about like what what those very specific things are related to resilience, but uh what's your wish list, Jigger? What would re- what is rebuilding? I know that we're still kind of having a conversation about the emergency at hand, but uh what what what's the wish list for you as we think about rebuilding and whatever resilience means for an island like Puerto Rico. So,
2: I think for those folks who've heard me on the podcast long enough, they know that my wish list is generally, you know, a far narrower wish list than, you know, could be possible, mostly just because I agree with all of the constraints that are, you know, self-imposed. I mean, when you look at Puerto Rico, for instance, um the fact that the governor and President Trump can't get along in any way shape or form is a problem. The governor has the ability to ask for things from Department of Energy, from other places. And because of the animosity between the two, he he has refused to ask for those things. Um, and so, so like I could have a very you know sort of long wish list, but in terms of what's possible or what's likely, it's really different. Um, the Army Corps of Engineers has hired Power Secure, for instance, and so at least those guys are engaged, and they're coming on board as well. Power Secure uh, is a microgrid developer, microgrid yeah, controls company. Except in this case, they've been hired to design the grid in uh, Puerto Rico. Um, The Whitefish, you know, group, I talked to the board of PREPA, who met yesterday. Um, And, you know, the board of PREPA has made it very clear that they picked Whitefish, that Whitefish had specific expertise around rebuilding transmission lines around mountain ranges, which is why they were chosen. There's 200 full-time staff there. And they deliberately didn't accept APPA's help because they couldn't house everybody. Okay, they, wait, wait, this is an interesting conversation. I actually want to bookmark
0: that because this is a whole very interesting political conversation that's blown up. And what you're saying is that maybe some of the reporting that we've seen isn't accurate. But, I, I, I but think just going have, back to your yeah, let's question. let's bookmark that. Let's bookmark I, that.
2: I think what's going to happen in Puerto Rico is that wealthy people in Puerto Rico will be building their own microgrids with their own money. Right, folks who own ten buildings, twelve buildings, fifteen buildings, a shopping center, whatever, they're building a microgrid using a diesel generator. Now they're adding solar and batteries to that as fuel saving systems. And then I think what's going to happen in Puerto Rico is that Prepa will have half the load that they had pre hurricane, um, when the load that was already ar- declining. Although that was already declining, to their bankruptcy. <laughs> yeah, and I think it'll decline by fifty percent. And then the question really becomes, like, what do you do with Prepa? Right? I mean, do you like my sense is what you do is you convert them into an ISO. They basically become a transmission slash, you know, um, slash distribution ISO that you know Catherine and John Wellinghoff talked about under the New York Rev. Um, that allows for these microgrids to flourish, right? I mean, it wouldn't, it wouldn't actually be surprising to me if the governor of Puerto Rico allowed individual municipalities within Puerto Rico to secede from PREPA and develop their own municipal utilities over the next few weeks. Catherine, does the future of
0: PREPA fit into the work that you're doing, or is that sort of outside the scope?
1: Yeah, part of this is trying to think through what does that look like? Because that does lead to how do we remove barriers to having that happen? Be- right now, PREPA, for example, doesn't have PPAs with um, with large consumers. They don't allow that. And so a lot of consumers were not, you know they were not able to sell back to the grid and that could have helped a lot. I mean, there were some buildings that had backup systems but not that many because it just wasn't part of their utility construct. So I think that construct is gonna have to change. Um, and while promessa which is the oversight you know board for prepa in Puerto Rico has installed an emergency manager to try to help run prepa right now that's really just de- you know deploying people on the ground that's not doing any kind of planning and there are so many cooks in that kitchen kitchen over there there's so many people trying to do things it's not being done in any organized fashion and i think what the the governor has got to step up and show leadership and say all right I'm not going to decide what's going to happen, but I need this, you know I need to pull together the right people to help make it happen. Whether it's you know to put together a long-term plan, that's what that's what Florida did after Hurricane Andrew, is they put together a long-term plan, and you can see they came back so much faster um, after Irma that you know, th- that helped. So I think that um, they're going to need to do that. And any kind of barriers that I can remove on the policy front, I will. I will say that Congress on both sides of the aisle, and honestly, because they run uh, Congress and the White House, I talk most of the time to Republicans, they are very um, incentivized to try to make sure that there's resilience built into whatever they do over there.
0: Where's the friction then? Where's the political friction? Like, what's the what do you have to solve to Start actually like addressing some of these real challenges.
1: Well, part of it is you need to be inclusive and make sure that you're including people who live there and work in Puerto Rico into the mix. And that's been really difficult to do. So I think that's that's part of where the friction is. But I think, at least in Congress, pe- a lot of people are kind of trying to move in the same direction. They may be doing it in different ways, but people are kind of thinking about it the same way. There is a leadership group that um, McCarthy is taking that includes Chairman Bishop, who is thinking about these topics down to Puerto Rico this week, and hopefully they'll be able to get some visceral understanding of what's going on down there. And I I would mention one other thing is that PREPA was in such bad shape to begin with. They had done no vegetation management. They had just basic tree trimming, which makes it so much harder to try to get things back up to speed, that there were just some really basic things that weren't happening that have to be put back into place.
0: Okay, so it's been a few weeks since we revisited this. What can we now say about renewable energy's role in the rebuilding process, either for future planning or for emergency backup power? Um, Jigger, what has the solar industry or the renewables industry in general stepped up any more in the last few weeks? What kind of activity have we seen?
2: Well, there's certainly been a lot of donations that have been made. I think there's over 200 solar companies that have donated equipment. Tesla, obviously, has it 's gotten a lot of press, but there are many others. A lot of solar generators we were able to send thousands of solar lanterns um, into the country, which is really important because um, people need places to charge their cell phones. Um, you know folks are running their diesel generator just to charge cell phones, which is a pretty inefficient process um, so that part 's been good um, there 's over eighty solar companies in Puerto Rico that have actually been. Up till now, sort of working for free to repair systems and do stuff, I think that they've sort of run out of their ability to do that. And so there's been a lot of, um, you know, like sort of paid work now that people have transitioned to. Um, Sia has been, has really done a great job stepping up. Uh, Dana Sleeper has been doing a lot of the work here and they've established free shipping routes through partnerships to get product from Houston or Miami to Puerto Rico so that folks didn't have to worry about shipping. Uh, domestic transport is not covered, but they're working on that. Um, and then on the ground, they're making sure that when the equipment gets there, there's somebody waiting for it so it doesn't get stolen um, and installed places. Um, they're creating tons of partnerships to get solar onto firehouses, police stations, um, health clinics and other critical centers. And so I think the solar industry is doing what it can. But frankly, I think the solar industry, as I said at the very outset, is really not prepared To take on, you know, sort of the yeoman's work here.
0: Which is where a heavy hitter like Catherine steps in and starts thinking about the bigger policy environment in which solar fits.
1: Yeah, I mean, part of this is just giving flexibility to the funding to make sure that you can put in solar or other kind of distributed generation, fuel cells, energy storage, whatever they need, backup generation to critical facilities, and then all of those integrating technologies to help make those work. The wiring and the cable, and you know all the in- inverters, all the integration, um, is really necessary so that you're not just sending down equipment that just sits there, but that you have people who understand how to install it and integrate it into the system. Um, I talked to some community solar people. And I said you guys would be so perfect down there, and they said, yeah, well we need credit-worthy off-takers and we need you know credit-worthy people to with whom to partner. And I think what that leads to is what Jigger has been saying, which is you need the private sector to step up, and you know you have an anchor tenant who has the community solar and allow- and supplies a specific area with that community solar, but then you need to change some of the utility construct and some of the rules and the regulatory processes to do that. And I think that's where PREPA is going to need to um, you know, need to make some changes. The other thing is that the Army Corps can only, in their backup power mission, can only send. I think I mentioned this diesel generators, and you know what that meant was somebody like Tesla wasn't able to send batteries down under this mission. They couldn't even compete for the contracts. You know, all they wanted was like, let us just compete for them. And you send a bunch of diesel gensets, then you need diesel. <laughs> so once they run out of diesel, what are they going to do? So. You know part of the issue is look like, let 's give the army corps let 's give FEMA and others some flexibility to be able to uh, be a little bit more creative, and in the end that's going to be so much more cost effective than trying to rebuild what they have
0: okay let 's rewind a little bit and unpack something that Jigger mentioned, which is this contractor, Whitefish Energy, which uh, was hired by prepa to start rebuilding transmission lines across the Commonwealth this is the biggest story of the week related to puerto rico's energy situation it blew up because whitefish energy is or was before the contract was signed a two-person firm based in whitefish montana and uh this is a town whitefish where interior secretary ryan zinke is from uh the the company's major investor it was a huge Trump donor. So there were all these questions swirling around about why this two-person contracting firm that was only a couple years old and had just started posting to its social media pages had all of a sudden got this major contract with PREPA to basically rebuild the entire transmission grid. So there were a lot of questions swirling around about the credibility of this company and why they
1: secured this contract in the way they did. Yeah, so the contract was actually not done through PREPA. The the contract was done through the Army Corps. And they were Uh, pretty much told that that they needed to work through Whitefish um, and, and Whitefish would have the primary responsibility for the grid restoration. Now, remember, it was only for the transmission side. It was not for the distribution side. So on the transmission side, these guys do have experience doing mountainous regions. They have access to those resources like helicopters to be able to install poles. And remember, there are a lot of those transmission lines that go over the mountains in Puerto Rico. So that's why I think they were picked. The issue is the Army Corps is not a grid planning function. They don't have that. They are an emergency power. They have an emergency power mission. They have good project management skills, but they they don't understand how do you plan for a grid. And yet they're kind of responsible for someone who is kind of doing that in real time on the ground. And I think that's a bigger issue is not just are you going to get the lines over the mountains, which I think we have, you know, we could argue about that, too. Is that really reasonable? Um, Or, you know, how do we how do we actually restore power to the people who need it?
0: Well, the other big criticism was that there was no uh, bidding process, and it was basically just handed over to this company that uh, you know people are speculating about, and, and and people are wondering like, okay, how did this two person company get this contract without uh, any bids? Jigger,
2: any commentary on that? So. Prepa had its own bidding process that it was going under for six months. I talked to several members of Prepa's board yesterday because they just finished a board meeting, and they all stand by the decision. They asked tough questions. They said that the pricing that these guys offered was pretty much exactly the same as the pricing they got from all of the other bidders. I'm simply saying that the Prepa folks that I've talked to fully defend their decision, even in light of the scandal. And do not believe that anything improper was done? Well, I guess we'll find out because the Energy and Natural
0: Resources Committee, I believe, is starting to investigate. Um, there are a number of government officials who've come out and sort of questioned the potential political connections. So we may start to get some more answers if and when an investigation goes forward. But at this point, uh, Whitefish says that it's continuing to do the work, and they've hired hundreds of workers, and they've got helicopters on site, and they're starting to be- rebuild the transmission lines. So um, while we're waiting for those political answers, I suppose we're also waiting for the results, which will probably speak for themselves.
1: Yeah, there will be lots of hearings in Congress on this. And maybe through those hearings, we will actually learn how to define resilience.
2: Well, the one thing I do want to just make sure that you know, folks know is that the current estimate for when people in the mountains are actually going to get power is a year. And so there is a tremendous amount of work being done by the solar industry to at least accelerate that because there is a recognition by the governor that um, these guys are not going to get power for a year, and it would be cheaper and faster just to give them a microgrid with solar plus batteries. This is happening
0: in the United States of America, folks. Just think about that for a little bit. All right, we're going to finish up by talking about shifting investment trends in renewables. And we've talked incessantly about the failure of venture capital and clean tech. So the search has been on for many years now for more patient investors and novel financing structures that can help bridge the gap for emerging companies in this field, for for companies deploying stuff and companies building stuff. So Generate Capital, the firm that Jigger co-founded with Scott Jacobs and Matan Friedman, is doing exactly that for solar storage, landfill gas, fuel cells, a range of technologies. He's uh, explained the model on the show before, but this week the firm announced a pretty important lead investor in a new $200 million fund, the Alaskan Permanent Fund. And I thought it was really important to talk about this because of the nature of the investor. So um, Jigger, what is the Alaskan Permanent Fund and why is it significant that this state-owned corporation – funded by oil revenues is is putting its money behind clean energy
2: Well I don't know that it's important that it's a that it's a, a sovereign wealth fund that's funded by oil revenues but I do think it's important that that the decision-making process between commercial banks, family offices and insurance companies are vastly different than the decision-making process for sovereign wealth funds and pension funds because they one are more regulated but two, they have just this extraordinary fear of losing money because they have pensions to pay and and, people's livelihoods at stake, right? And so the vetting process is just much more uh, difficult. And while these firms have already put money into solar and wind, they have not yet really put money into battery storage, anaerobic digesters, fuel cells, and all these other climate wealth solutions that we all know we need to be able to get our carbon emissions down.
0: Okay, so you're saying that the 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 diversity story is not that a fund like this is investing but it's that they're willing to take a look at a broader range of tech.
2: Yeah, cuz I you know, cuz a lot of these this tech doesn't have a track record, right? I mean, a lot of these pension funds, they want to see 20 years of track record in order to make a 20 year investment. Right? So You know, when I say, well, I need to see a 10-year track record or five-year track record before I put money in, right? These guys generally want to see a track record that's as long as the contract you're having them fund. Um, And many of these technologies just don't have that track record. And as far as I understand it, this this
0: permanent fund is kind of designed to support future future thinking investments. Um, what, what's the original design of the fund and like, and, and how does that influence their decision to invest in some of this emerging technology?
2: So the thought process that's come around recently is that when you think about all of these investors and how they, um, have been investing, right? So they invest a lot in oil and gas, not Alaska permanent, but just pension funds in general. Um, what happens in the in, in the oil and gas investment side is, as you've seen from Tony Siba or lots of other people that we've talked about, if electric vehicles were to penetrate just 1 million barrels a day of oil, which is only about 1% of global oil usage, you could see a precipitous drop in oil prices, right? I mean, oil prices on the margins. So if they're not invested in electric vehicles or some of the substitutes for oil, then They could lose their shirt on their oil and gas investments um, through this disruption and not get any benefits by investing in the disruptors, right? And so a lot of these guys have realized that they actually need to spread their money around and they can't really just be invested in the old stuff. They have to be invested in the disruptors and then, of course, efficiency solutions as well.
1: Yeah, and Jigger, um, the goal of the Alaska Permanent Fund Corporation is to produce an average annual rate of return of 5%. And so it seems to me that the new disruptive technologies are going to also be a better deal in that regard.
2: Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, I think 5% is something that we have proven year after year to be able to produce not only at Generate, but also at you know, many other firms in the space. Um, so, so I, I think that's a really big deal. And I think that the other piece of this, just so you guys are aware, is that like Generate Capital is a C corporation and not a fund. And that I think is really important as well, because we can certainly spend an hour on all the nuances of funds versus C corps. But the important piece of this is that, is that when you're a fund, your entire mandate is set at the time at which you raise the fund, right? So on day one, like, you know, you have to identify all the technologies you're willing to do. You have to identify how long the life is of the fund, let's say 10 years. And at the end of 10 years, no matter what's happening in the economy, you have to sell all your assets and give the money back to your investors, right? Whereas as a C-Corp, we're a permanent funding vehicle. So we can own a piece of equipment for 25, 30 years and not have to give the money back to investors. Investors get their money back just like, you know, any other venture capitalist or other person gets their money. They get their money when there's an IPO or when someone's able to sell their shares, which is different than a fund where you have a forced return of capital at the end of the fund life. Right, and that that right there is the core of generates
0: uh, approach.
2: Yeah, I think that that piece of it, and then the other piece of it is, as a C corp, the longer we stay in business and produce returns, the more that banks view us as a company, right? And what I mean by that is. You know, General Electric, when they go out and say, hey, I want to raise corporate debt at L plus 275, like LIBER plus 275 uh basis points, um no one asks like, well, let me do due diligence on every single project that you're working on at at GE. They say, Well, you're a corporation, you've had earnings, you've been profitable for the last 10 years, so therefore we'll give you money. And that's exactly where we're headed, right? And so and you see that with Sunrun's latest um fundraise as well, where as a corporation, we don't necessarily have to have the banks do due diligence on every single investment we make. They can just say, you guys have been profitable for the last eight quarters. This is great. So we'll just give you money because we trust that you're a good steward of capital. And that, I think, could be a game changer because then it allows us to take more perceived risks. Like nobody wants us to take actual um, risks and lose the money. But we can take higher perceived risks so when things are out of favor like battery technologies that are not lithium ion are out of favor right now or you know fuel cells are out of favor right now we can make those investments without fear that some investor is going to puke all over it and you know try to pull their capital
0: okay last question for you what range of technologies do you imagine this fund backing and are there any new areas that you're entering into that you didn't start off backing?
2: Well, I mean, Generate Capital has over 30 sectors that we're evaluating. Everything from, you know, indoor agriculture to, um, you know, compost facilities to, you know, I'm trying to think of what else is sort of weirder, um, sensors for drought resistance, Um There's tons of sectors where the technology is ready, and it really does save a tremendous amount of money on resources, Um, but it's not yet mainstream within the banking community. Um, And so, you know, when Alaska Permanent invested into Generate, it invested knowing that we had the right to invest in all of these sectors that, you know, made financial sense and made, you know, sense for the planet. All right, well, congrats on the fund,
0: and uh, you know, thanks for, for giving us an overview of the thesis. Let's tell our listeners something they don't know now to wrap up the show. Catherine, what do you got for a story?
1: Yeah, a couple things, because despite your amazing uh, wedding and honeymoon, Congress did continue to do its work. Um, And so Senator, speaking of Senator Heinrich, he and Senator Heller, who is a Republican from Nevada, again, for the second time, introduced the investment tax credit for energy storage. It's S-1868 for anybody who wants to look it up. This is the fourth time that this fourth Congress that this bill has been introduced in a bipartisan way. I'm now trying to get it done on the House side too. So hopefully we'll at least have something just in case there's an opportunity to stick a new tax credit in or to do a clarification, which is really what this is. It just pulls energy storage out of being inextricably linked to solar and renewables. It it kind of creates its own um, piece just like fuel cells and geothermal would have had. The other two things just of note um, S1875 is Senator Ron Wyden from Oregon. He introduced um, a series of bills on resilience. They didn't necessarily start that way, but it ended up that way for the timing. And he has some pretty good language in there that could be used to do, uh, for DOE to do reports on resilience. So I'm kind of looking at that as, a, as an opportunity to kind of move the resilience conversation forward. And finally, uh, the Master Limited Partnership Parity Act. Again, this is numbers of Congresses that this has been introduced, um, is going to be introduced, I believe, today. It's bipartisan and bicameral. So it's Coons, uh, a Democrat from Delaware, and Moran, a Republican from Kansas on the Senate side, and then Poe, a Republican from Texas, and Thompson, a Democrat from California on the House side. And this opens up master limited partnerships to not just the oil and gas sector that has enjoyed them for a long time, but also to renewables and efficient and storage. So um, this would be one of those things that in the context of tax reform might look uh, like a really good opportunity.
0: So one-off trade-offs or part of a bigger energy package?
1: Oh, uh, well, part of all of tax reform. You know, they're moving down right. that. Yes, yeah, so it would be but, part but, of a big package. But a bill. different
0: track than like the previous attempts to pass a comprehensive energy bill through the Senate in the last year. Yeah,
1: should. that that energy bill, which is still percolating in the Senate and is just waiting for floor time, that's only for um, energy policy. That is not a tax bill.
2: Jager, tell us something we don't know. So... I've been thinking a lot about hydrogen given our investments in the space it generate. And there was this extraordinary piece, 9,000 words by um, Nicholas Stetcher um, on the drive.com on the return of our hydrogen future, which, you know, it's, there's so much in here. I can't go through it all, but what's interesting is um, how much money is continuing to go into not only the production of hydrogen cars and products and trucks and that kind of stuff, but also around, you know, refueling stations, um, and other sort of investments. So there'll be 80 refueling stations in California by 2020, there'll be a hundred in Germany by 2020, 150 in Japan. Um, and so it's pretty extraordinary, um, how much is still happening there, even with, um, you know, battery, lithium ion batteries taking all of the, Square inches of uh, space in the press. Indeed. Okay, well, I'm going to wrap up with a completely shameless
0: plug for our upcoming events because we've got a ton of them to wrap up the end of the year. So... Um, Today, actually, it's October 26th as we um, record this. I was just at our New England Solar and Storage Symposium, and we had a really fantastic conversation with Mary Powell of Green Green uh, Mountain Power. She's the CEO there. They talked. We talked a lot about their partnership with Tesla. We had uh, Philip Martin, who's the director of DER deployment at EnterNOC, and the uh, deputy administrator of the Rhode Island DPU, uh, who I'll I'll Talked about kind of the big policy and regulatory and business issues in New England. And we're expanding that to the broader power sector in Austin, Texas. It's our US Power and Renewables Summit on November 7th and 8th. Austin's a killer city. And uh, we're going to talk about the epic amounts of a change in the utility sector and um, how renewables are intersecting with power markets and uh, what that looks like both in the US and globally. So there's a lot to chew on there. That's the US Power and Renewables Summit. Then in December 12th and 13th is our US Energy Storage Summit in San Francisco. And we're going to talk about everything storage as we've talked about on this podcast. It's not just theoretical anymore. People are doing deals. And some of the best feedback that we get about our conferences is that like there's a lot of good networking there, and people are actually signing deals at these conferences. So you're going to learn about, a lot about the storage industry and where things are at from our analysts. And then also if you're in the biz, it's a good place to, to meet some of the top players. Um, so those are uh, a couple of events that are coming up through the remainder of the year, and I hope you can check them out. You just got to go to greentechmedia.com slash events. Uh, we're really proud of these conferences and their quality so we hope you can make it and come come network with us and of course I'll, I'll be on I'll be on stage talking to some folks doing some fireside chats and panel discussions well with that uh, thanks for joining us it's been a while since we've talked to y'all it's good to be back You can send us some story ideas or your questions or commentary to podcasts at greentechmedia.com. Better yet, just hook up with us on Twitter. We're all active there, and we usually respond to your commentary. We love to to converse and debate with folks. Uh, Of course, you can find us on pretty much every platform, and we have uh, shifted our platform over to Art19. So you can still get us on SoundCloud, but our RSS feeds are now... On Art Night team, and of course we're on Apple Podcasts, um, on NPR One, on Stitcher, Google Play, you name it. Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw are my regular co-hosts in Washington D.C. I'm Stephen Lacey in Boston, the editor in chief of Green Tech Media. This is the Energy Gang. We'll catch you next week.